everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Globe Podcast brought to you by the World Football Index. Today, we're going to do another book review. Joining us, it's actually his second appearance on World Football Index. He appeared actually on, on a Globe as well uh, for the Linfield Celtic game. Delighted to say I'm being joined by Ben Roberts once again. Ben, first of all, how are you today? All well? I'm very well, thanks. Yes, uh, good day. Good day for me. Uh, how are you? Oh, getting there, getting there. Listen, I, I want to get into this book because it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating read. Uh, first of all, I'll let you introduce it. I think it's, it's only fair. Um, it, it's, it's basically released today. So, Ben, tell us all about it. Uh, so, it's it's kind of a definitive history of uh, the Northern Irish game. So, from the origins of, of football in Northern Ireland. And what's the title? I was hoping you'd start with the title. Uh, it was brilliant. <laughs> it's uh, Gunshots and Goalposts. Um, so, I thought it really encapsulated um, kind of, you know, there's the football there, but this was football in, well, what was then the north of Ireland, the northeast of Ireland, and what is now um, politically, at least, uh, Northern Ireland. And and I really wanted to kind of get across very snappily that this was a football book, but it was a, it was a book that, that kind of scratched beneath the surface of the football and, and made you realise that those sectarian undercurrents that have been all too prevalent in 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 Ireland, uh, particularly in Ulster, for for a couple of hundred years or more, you know, football hasn't escaped that one bit from almost the sort of very earliest teams in Ireland, and it has to be said the sort of origins of, of football in Ireland were fairly solidly in Ulster. It was the place, the sort of areas around Belfast were. And the places that provided the the most sort of secure work for the industrial working class. So it was the ideal place in in any country um, is a place like that for football to flourish. And um, because there's people who perhaps didn't have the 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 time or the inclination to play slightly more upper class sports like rugby or cricket, and particularly Scots. Scottish immigrants um, who'd come across from from Glasgow and banks of the Clyde to work in the shipyards in Belfast um, were were just the perfect of breeding ground for the game in Ireland. Broadly speaking, that's the origins of of, of the game in uh, the northern part of Ireland, which which went on to become, of course, about forty years later, Northern Ireland. You're trying to be very diplomatic there. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> our, our listeners will be obviously well accustomed to my dulcet Northern Ireland tones. Um, you don't appear to have them yourself, so maybe maybe a good starting point will be uh, you know your your links to the province and uh, you know family lineage. Ex- explain what what drove you to, to do this book. So uh, um, my great grandfather um, was one of those um, men from East Belfast who who worked in the shipyards of Holland and Wolf, and uh, and I can kind of trace my family back. You know, before that, I think actually, and this is probably going to be a bit less di- diplomatic, but heavily rumoured that I've got uh, great grandparents and great uncles who were. Uh, involved with the the original UVF and indeed were possibly involved in gun running um, in 1914. So just a, just um, a just, little disclaimer there. Um, I think <laughs> the majority of us have, <laughs> have that same sort of uh, badge of uh, or stain on us or whatever way you want, you want to put it. 
Uh, I, I don't think there's anybody, if you go back into your lineage throughout, that haven't been involved in some way or other. So it, it, it's not, I don't think it's just maybe as bad as what it sounds today. Yes, that's that's probably true. And it, and it sounds worse outside of the context of Ireland and Ireland in, in the early 20th century um, than it than it might uh, to uh, to somebody from from within Ireland, certainly. No, well, I think around that time, you know, the the original UVF really, you know, there is a sort of clear sort of difference between that and the sort of terrorist version that we saw. Um, certainly around the world wars and things like that. That it's certainly, in in my opinion, anyhow, there's there's people out there who'll probably very strongly disagree with me, uh, possibility, but uh, to to me, it, it, it wasn't what we saw as as what we saw as so like the, the, the paramilitary so to speak ben yeah oh no no yeah no i don't think uh i don't think many people would draw a straight line between between the two um the the well, original right, well, uvf and the, what side of the yeah. fence you're on such as the, yeah, well. <laughs> the conundrum of northern ireland <laughs> yes uh, as is uh, as is um the case in almost anything um, that you mentioned about about Northern Ireland, there's uh, and even football. Se- several <laughs> several ways of um, several ways of observing it. But listen, getting more into sort of the, the football side of things, obviously it's it's not a subject that we see an awful lot in the mainstream. To be fair, and I would imagine that your research for this book would have been it would have been a difficult enough job, Ben, because you know even even online there, if if you want to go back, and I, I've. I love my history of football and everything. I never really was able to find that much about Northern Ireland. How did how did you go about this process of of getting your information? I mean, the the quality of some of the information that's online is, you know, you'll find a bit of information in one place and then you'll go to another site and it will directly contradict um, what the first source has said. This is a nightmare. How you know? How can I establish what what the truth of this was? One person says this match was on Boxing Day. The other person says it was on the day. You know, all, all these sorts of um, contradictions. What I kind of started with was a sort of basis of uh, scholarly research, I suppose, that some academics um, had done, and I imagine probably I was one of the sort of thirteen people who bought his book. But I thought, well, this is a good place, good foundation to start, um, because I can I can trust the sources. Um, you know, I can I can look up where where this information came from, and kind of built from there, and, and followed my nose around the the research. And actually, this had started off for me as as a quite a small project that was just oh, I'm going to post something online, which I did, and that was going to be a few thousand words, and it became a few thousand more words, and I put it online, and it was quite well received. And then somebody suggested to me, well, you know, there's there's a bit more there. Um, you could uh, you could maybe make this into something else. That was about a year ago. That's just a bit more than a year ago. I kind of uh, once I'd started, I, I couldn't stop. So it, it became this, not entirely chronological. And it's uh, don't don't sort of misunderstand me here. It's not sort of a recitation of of every statistic from every year but it's a fairly chronological look from the origins of the game in the late 1870s in Ireland to last year and and the European Championships 
You know, I was fascinated whenever I read the opening of it. A lot of people don't actually realize, and I think as, as, as time moves on, it becomes even less apparent. You know, I was aware of it, but maybe even just basically aware of it. You know, they talk about in Northern Ireland football, you know, you've got Torn, you've Linfield, they're the two big, the two big clubs of that league and so on. Mm. Um, you know, obviously there's Derry City who play League of Ireland. But there used to be Belfast Celtic, which were a massive club. And, and you know, your early chapters focus quite heavily on them, Ben. Yeah, I mean, they were a cultural institution in West Belfast. Um, they'd uh, been formed uh, with the aid of a grant from Glasgow Celtic um, in the 1880s, about 1886, I think. And uh, and almost overnight, they were this huge thing in West Belfast. And you know, there's, there's sort of reports of, I think, the, the line is West Belfast turned out to a man. And you just have you know thousands of people leaving on trains to go and watch watch them sort of play in mid ulster or or up in Coleraine or you know similar places so there were this big force in the land for nationalists uh, catholics you know republicans for for about 70 years were the center of of some major clashes with with Linfield, um, who for people listening that might not be aware were and, and remained the, the kind of unionist equivalent for a certain type of loyalist in certain parts of Belfast. Linfield is supporting Linfield is is just part of your identity. And and obviously these two clubs being the the, the sort of avatars of these two identities for working class nationalists and, and loyalists um, had some spectacular clashes, not so much on the pitch, although obviously what was going on on the pitch was was important, but how how the fans reacted to that and how those events on the pitch were were the spark some quite serious disorder you know guns being discharged um towards crowds and into the air and you know for for at least 10 15 years between about 1910 and 1925 gunfire and mostly into the air but gunfire um football matches in belfast was fairly common which sounds ludicrous but you know it was it, it was something that had become fairly unremarkable there was games that ireland played in 1912 13 14 um against england and scotland where uh, in belfast where guns were discharged so to a sort of a, a, an english audience um a scottish audience a welsh audience a worldwide audience with a remove of 100 years it it sounds astonishing um but it was it was something that was fairly commonplace um and this was particularly the case in 1912 there was a match between linfield and belfast celtic that had to be abandoned um and 1912 was a was a really key year in in the history of Belfast about five months four or five months before that particular game the Titanic had sunk in the North Atlantic Ocean um, and obviously the Titanic had been been made in Belfast and was a huge source of pride for the the mainly Protestant workers of East Belfast who'd been involved in its construction um, but the other thing that you had going on in 1912 was the Home Rule Bill was in uh, before Parliament in Westminster. There was a real fear amongst the unionist community and a lot of excitement amongst the nationalist community um, that this was going to pass this time because um, 
the the lords the the sort of parliamentary procedures have been changed so the lords couldn't block it anymore they could but they could only block it a couple of times and then it would have to pass um and so just a couple of weeks after that that big game in september 1912 there was the ulster day um which involved pretty much a, a sort of who's who of Protestants in Northern Ireland. And the UVF a, featured very strongly UVF, in that, yes. I believe, then. UVF kind of, yeah, came about a few months after that, but but had been loosely convened around um, that time. Um, so you had about a quarter of a million men and um, equivalent amount of women who signed the Ulster Covenant, and then perhaps about 100,000 of those men by three or four months later at the beginning of 1913 um, had formally convened what what became uh, the UVF. So by 1914, the Home Rule Bill was, well, it was was given royal assent in 1914, but as we know, something else quite major happened in 1914 in that the First World War began and any kind of... uh, thoughts of home rule and and the the whole law was just put to one side until the end of of the war and by the time the first world war had ended feeling amongst nationalists was for a much purer form of independence than would have been granted which wasn't independence at all really by the the original home rule bill um which would have still seen ireland kind of under the British Crown and and so on and so forth. Um, And so you had another sort of outbreak of quite angry and violent sentiment from both sides. And this this kind of spilled onto the pitch and around the pitch again, and this time around uh, Belfast Celtics games with uh, Glen Torren, who are the were and are the, the, the sort of main unionist side of East Belfast. It culminated with Belfast Celtic dipping out of the game for three or four seasons while these major events were were occurring. And by the time they came back into the game, Ireland had been partitioned. Um, So you had what was then called the Irish Free State and you had Northern Ireland. When Belfast Celtic came back into the game, they, after, you know, a couple of years back in the game, they'd they'd become pretty much the strongest side. And, And Linfield, I think, in the 1927 season finished seventh or eighth um, out of 12 teams so it, it was looking good for Belfast Celtic and actually the, the next 20 odd years for them were you know fairly promising after the second world war where football had been sort of heavily regionalized um, I, the Irish league had just been sort of squished into a Belfast league basically and so in 1948 um, there was a, another game between Belfast Celtic and Linfield. And, and again, you had this backdrop in Northern Ireland of this fear because the Irish constitution claimed the, the whole territory of the island of Ireland. Um, and just a few months later, Ireland would declare itself a republic and leave the Commonwealth. So there was this fear in Northern Ireland that perhaps there would be an invasion or you know a change in in the the status quo and this kind of fueled partly fueled the atmosphere on this this game um, just after christmas in 1948 and the other thing that probably fueled it is well people have been off work for a couple of days and they've been drinking um quite frankly never <laughs> um, and, uh, 
<laughs> the reason this game kind of uh, lives in infamy is because it saw Belfast Celtic leave the game, not immediately, but at the end of that season. And that was because uh, at the end of that game, so Belfast Celtic had a number of Protestant players, which wasn't highly unusual. It was more unusual for Linfield to uh, to have Catholic players. But Belfast Celtic probably had four or five Protestant players, um, the most well-known of whom was Jimmy Jones, who was their top scorer. Um, and he'd had a, a cousin or uncle um, who'd been a Linfield player. And as he was leaving the pitch at the end of the game, he was uh, he was sort of set upon by, I, I mean, it's hard to say whether they were bona fide Linfield fans, sort of died in the wall Linfield fans, or, you know, just people looking for a, for a scrap and troublemakers. But, you know, they came out of the Linfield end, let's say that, and uh, jumped on his leg and, and shattered it, basically. And it was the Celtic directors said, we, we can't let you, you lads put up with this anymore. You know, this just doesn't seem like it's going to be a, a, a tenable situation going forward. Ben, I, I think, you know, what, what you're saying there, and, and it's something that became very apparent in the book, and I'm sorry for interrupting you, in football terms in Northern Ireland, or, or it, well, you take it, um, you know, pre-partition, that sectarianism was always there. And, you know, it's something that that's still... Northern Ireland football still sort of suffers from, and I can't see a solution to it in, in the long term. It's, there's always going to be pockets of it there. It has reduced and so on. But I think what maybe might surprise some people is, you know, I think the history of the Troubles, the way they're, they're being narrated these days, would suggest you know, the problem was partition. But these problems were, in football terms, were there long before that. You know, you've spoken about gunfire at football matches in, in, in you know, in 1914 and 1912, before that even. So, so that tells you that this was, this was something that, you know, it, it goes back generations. It's generational, this, this sectarianism at football. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the things that became clear is that actually, although when Linfield and Belfast Celtic came about in sort of 1886, 1891, there was a lot of enmity between those two clubs, but it was to do with the areas that they drew their support from. So Belfast Celtic drawing their support from the Pound Loney district and the Falls, um, Linfield drawing theirs from the Sandy Row. And these two communities had had you know, the the sort of enmity and the, the sort of feuding between these two communities had existed for at least 50 years before the two football clubs had even existed. Um, so it, it wasn't as though, um, you know, these, these football clubs came along and, and, and kind of, uh, or, or that partition came along and, and caused this this thing it, it it had been a long-standing thing and you know as as sport or anything that draws large groups of people into into one place um into into perhaps uh competing tribes if you like was the site of of division but it, it wasn't the thing that caused the division well i think you know well maybe we've, we've lingered on on the bad side of it and i think maybe jumping forward maybe to to, to the 80s um, you know, uh, maybe for the next segment, because certainly I would say your research there would have been a lot of fun for the, the 82, the 86 World Cup. Um, you know, the, the 58, there's, again, there's not a great deal of, of, of stuff out there in Northern Ireland in 58. Uh, but certainly the 82, 86 would have, would, would have been good fun to, to report on, Ben. So uh, actually, it, it turned out that Northern Ireland did their training before they went to 
to the World Cup in Spain, um, just down the road from from where I live at the University of Sussex, um, which is somewhere I know well. Um, I actually and it, remember that. You just jogged my memory. I actually remember <laughs> that their training camp was was in England, and there was there was I think there was a bit of an uproar at the time in Northern Ireland. Why aren't they training at home? But well, it <laughs> turned out. It turned out to be extremely fortuitous because the weather in Brighton, so the University of Sussex is in Brighton. I live very close to Brighton and very familiar with the campus at Sussex. It, the, the weather was extremely nice on the English south coast um, in 82. Um, so they were there for a couple of weeks, um, but it was it was this great preparation um, for going to their um, base, which was in Valencia, actually at Levante's. Um, ground so, so the second team of Valencia Levante's ground and when they actually when they reached Levante Levante were um, in some huge financial difficulties at the time so the Irish Football Association the IFA um, had to step in and pay their bills um, so they could put the lights on in the the stadium so they could train in there and get the grass cut and uh, yeah it was fascinating to look through some of the sort of backstory to the journey um, to that point, you know, Norman Whiteside had only made his debut for um, Man- 17 years and 41 days, yeah. I believe. I did a pod on it there the other day, so that's fresh in the memory. Beat Pele's record. Yeah, and he got a nice video message from Pele as well, <laughs> um, the sort of after the game. But he only made his Manchester United debut a few months before and had actually only really cemented his place not in the squad. He was always going to be in the squad, but in the side while the team were training um, in Sussex, he sort of take scored this sort of worldie from 30 yards out or something. And Billy Bingham, you know, said, right, that lad's got to be in the team. But yeah, you've got these sort of funny incidents of the IFA freighting crates of Guinness out to Valencia. Um, I mean, obviously now you'd go Where to Spain. Is great. <laughs> you'd, you'd go to Spain now and you'd just expect, you know, a Guinness on tap. But um, this was the early 80s. So uh, the IFA didn't want to be without their Guinness. Um, so they freighted crates out. Uh, what they didn't do was they only ordered three sets of the kit because they thought, well, we're not going to get out of this group. So we'll just get three sets of the white kit, which was the away kit. That's the only one we're going to need. Um, just play these three group games, then we'll be on our way home. And uh, and as we know, um, all nine got through the group and they had to make this Top rushed the order. Group. Top the group. To, <laughs> <laughs> this rushed order to Adidas for the green kit. And they they hadn't booked a hotel because they thought well, we're not going to need a hotel to, after these group games. We'll just be, you know, on the on the flight back to Nuts Corner. So they had to uh, quickly take over the booking of the uh, the Yugoslav team. And I think um, I read sort of some reports that they they literally passed them on the stairs as they as the Yugoslav team were leaving the hotel. They were just going up the stairs as the Yugoslav team were coming down the stairs. Um, so, you know, typical sort of um, amateur hour stuff, but but really shining a, a, a bit of a light onto to what an incredible achievement um, that was for, for uh, it, it, it's a bit different now because there's perhaps even smaller nations competing and succeeding. Um, but for such a small nation to have done as well and made it as far as they did and legitimately at the end of that tournament be able to say, you know, this nation of one and a half million people, as Billy Bingham was fond of saying, a nation that um, could fit into Birmingham, 
population wise was one of the best teams the 12 best teams in the world he's also fabled for saying i settle for a draw <laughs> and, and to be honest with you we lost one game to an inspired uh by platini france side and we did lose it rather badly but you know yeah. what i mean we beat spain everything else was a draw we drew two two each in the second phase of that world cup with austria and you know i remember i was i think it was 15 16 at that time and you know the sense of pride and, and northern ireland wasn't a place like it really was a, a shitty place to grow up in Mm. And you didn't have much joy about the place, you know what mm. I mean? There was always that undercurrent of of, of, of sectarian problems uh, running through the country, and this was this was a game changer in in, in my life, Ben. You know what I mean? It, it's it's a time if I think about my football memories that I just go back to eighty two because it's everything that was good about that tournament added into the fact that it actually changed a country that was basically at war with itself, and and brought about. For the first time, I think in my life, a real proper sort of unifying joy. Uh, yeah, there's se- several things to say on that. Really, uh, first of all, that more uh, VHS recorders were rented uh, during the duration of the tournament than had been rented for the royal wedding um, the year before, uh, when uh, Charles and Diana got married. That the uh, Holland and Wharf shipyards and the Sirocco rope works um, gave their so they let their employ well let their employees. They offered their employees um, to be able to do a sort of a night shift so that they could finish early um, and then be able to to watch that game um, that otherwise they would have still been um, in the shipyards for. And and perhaps most tellingly, perhaps most poignantly of all, the just leading up to the tournament in the months leading up to the tournament the sectarian murder rate had been running at about one every three days and in the several weeks of the tournament that that northern ireland were in the tournament there was one sectarian murder now you know you could just put that down to coincidence but yeah pulling together but i I can remember it very very clearly and i'll say it's the first time in my life that i remembered this, this is what sort of normality looks like. Mm. So, you know, I want, I want to bring it forward then maybe into the, the 2016 tournament and maybe the differences. I was back home again uh, last June, Ben, and both Ireland's qualifying for the Euros, first time in Northern Ireland's history. I saw a very, very different Northern Ireland, you, you know, all, albeit the two traditions, you know, they each had their day at the Titanic for their games on the big screen and whatnot. And apart from the fact the place was virtually empty because uh, everybody was in France, you know, the people who were left... There was again a carnival atmosphere. There was again, you know, it, it almost felt like, you know, everybody was getting on with each other. There was a bit of banter back and forth between the two, you know, the north and the south and whatnot. But it was good natured. It wasn't, you know, it didn't have that deep rooted hatred and whatnot. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure it still existed. Just I, I never witnessed it. Incredibly encouraging to to see. And, you know, me and my dad had tried in vain to uh, get tickets to go to France um, which we weren't able to but um, you know just following it on on TV and you know I think there was the death of a Northern Ireland fan forgive me I can't remember his name um, but then the next time the Republic played um, there was then a chant you know uh, stand up for the Ulsterman and you know just these small things um. there was there was also I don't know whether you noticed it Ben there, there was a couple of videos there on YouTube and I, I came across them actually researching another pod it's in Dublin airport with the two sets of fans singing backward and forward and together and I don't think in years gone by that would have existed. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, I think, obviously, you know, this isn't to kind of gloss over 
stuff that that does still exist and and you know could still exist in the future um but if you look back to in the early 90s there was and you, you know you'll remember this well 93 um a game qualifying game for uh, USA 94 which Northern Ireland had absolutely no hope of getting to this game was crucial for the Republic of Ireland um and it, and it was kind of against the backdrop of of uh, some really brutal sectarian yeah, murders it was. It was a bad um, time bad time all around for that i i don't doubt the rivalry it's how they went about it mm. everybody needs a rival but they went mm. about it the wrong way that night mm. yeah and you know when you think that to travel from from Dublin to to Belfast Jack Charlton's Republic of Ireland team it wasn't safe for them to travel by rose, they had to fly at this kind of ludicrously short distance. 15 minute flight, just to, just yeah. to give you an idea. <laughs> yeah. And then have um, special branch officers on their coach in, in Football Association of Ireland tracksuits disguised as, as, as sort of lackeys, but they were actually British special branch officers. Such was the, the sort of security situation. You know, the FAI not officially not selling any of their form 400 person allocation that they'd received you know this horrible vicious environment 20 odd years on you know things particularly uh, i would say in the last 10 years in terms of that northern irish crowd well i must say ben again sorry to interrupt you know during that whole time around that and then we had the neil lennon incident and i find it very difficult number one even to get behind it i wouldn't have gone to windsor park at that time it was a particularly ugly atmosphere but what went on at that time was was way way out of order, and it was to the detriment for years. And and when the the fall that Northern Ireland had, I equate to that behaviour. I I think what what you say is entirely true. You know, there were even sort of people that would consider themselves Northern Irish, consider themselves Unionists, but sort of mo- people of of a moderate Unionist persuasion thought oh, I'm too ashamed to to go to these matches anymore. Um, you had attendances dropping down to three or four thousand. Uh, in 1999, you had the French team coming over for a game in Belfast. And remember France for the reigning World Cup holders at this point. And you had you had attendances under I think the attendance was under five thousand for for that game. Lilian Turam, Marcel Desai, um, perhaps several other players were were booed um, because of the colour of their skin. You know, the crowd sort of degenerated into this awful hardcore of sort of real sectarian and racist bigots. Took a bit of a, a kick up the arse, I suppose. The Neil Lennon stuff. So briefly. Um, Neil Lennon was booed by his own crowd, was substituted at halftime in that game. Uh, and then uh, uh, a few games later, came back and was made captain. And it was the first time that he was sort of officially the captain and had started the game as the captain or would have started the game as the captain, um, were it not for the fact that just shortly before the game, a, a, a death threat was was phoned in. He got a, he got a bullet through the post as well, Ben. From what I recall, yeah, we can edit it was it, out. It was, but it was in it was in yeah. around that whole yeah. that whole period that I'm talking about. That that was the yeah. behaviour. That was the mentality. Yeah, and 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 so that was kind of the catalyst for for the IFA and the the football for all program. But the IFA had 
I mean, let's not be around the bush. have been dragging their feet on a little bit. You know, they were kind of jolted into action. And so sort of people in plain clothes were, were employed to be sort of interspersed within the crowd. And then there were certain sort of crowd leaders that were there to, to kind of drown out some of the, the grossly sectarian chants, like the Billy Boys with um, the sort of now ubiquitous um, we're not Brazil, we're Northern Ireland chant. And and actually, I think was, was 2008, the Northern Irish fans were, were given the sort of UEFA Supporters of the Year um, awards. And, you know, it was only six years since they've sort of been a disgrace, basically, uh, you know, albeit a minority of them, but too many. And, and the team um, at, the, at the sort of until about 2005, the team were dreadful as well. Um, for a couple of years didn't score for uh, I think about 20 hours it was a UA for record at the time and there was this sort of joke that went around because obviously UK US forces were in Iraq and there was this joke that Saddam had emerged out of his bunker to ask if Northern Ireland had managed to score yet but Laurie Sanchez came in and, and sort of solidified the team a bit and the nature of the crowd was changing and, and really that, that sort of period um, from 2005 onwards. The, the, the beating of England, I think, was the turning, was the major, it was the biggest turn of the screw. Incredible. I was living um, in England then as I am now and I'd, uh, I'd gone down the pub in my Northern Ireland shirt and thought, oh, we're going to get, we're going to get beat here. And we won. And, uh, and it was, it was just, uh, I mean, I can remember it so vividly kind of 12 years on just this incredible moment of, of, you know, Healy launching himself into, into history. Just an incredible moment. No, I can actually recall it very well. I was actually working in the gas works in Belfast, which is probably as a crow flies, probably about a mile away from Windsor Park. And when Healy scored, in our building, I was on the fourth floor. The windows, double glazed units were actually moving. And <laughs> never heard noise like it. You know, the, the roar that went up that night. And, you know, it, it's been a slow progress of coming back, coming back and, you know, settling out these problems. You know, obviously you mentioned with the two lorries, uh, McMenemy and Sanchez, you know, with Nigel Worthing in there as well, with a bit of help from Jerry Armstrong. But Michael O'Neill coming, coming in. Uh, you know, my, my big fear at the moment is, you, you know, we, we saw what he did in, in uh, Euro 2016, which I'm getting there, topping a group again. And even we take, you know, this World Cup qualification with world champions Germany and we're still in with a shout. Michael O'Neill, I'm, I'm just terrified of losing him. I think what he has done and, you know, what that has done for Northern Ireland football and in curing that sort of sectarian curse that, you know, we started on. And, I, and I'm very mindful to finish on this this sort of very positive uh, new age of Northern Ireland football, Ben. Yeah, so I mean, you've got Liam Boyce in that side. Uh, unfortunately, he's injured for the rest of the season now. But you got Liam Boyce in that side. Grew up in West Belfast. Um, educated, at, um, if I'm not wrong, a Christian Brothers school in West Belfast. Who rooms with Josh McGuinness, a, a Protestant from from Bangor. You know, Mike, when Michael O'Neill came in. Um, he made it very clear that the Northern Irish side had to be, uh, uh, I mean, not that it was a hostile place, you know, in the sort of five, six, seven, eight years before, but that it needed to be a, a more welcoming um, environment for for players of I think, a I think they've done Catholic. it as a club. You know what I mean, Ben? It's a club mentality they've put in. They've realised they're a small nation. Let's have a club mentality. This is it. And, and I think he's realised 
um, you know, to as he had to really. That it, it's a small nation um, of limited resources, of, of a much smaller population than, than a lot of the nation, the nations that um, he would be competing against. And just as as Peter Doherty realised this in the fifties, and and Billy Bingham did in in eighty two, um, he's got to work with what he's got. I mean, those those games. Um, even that that loss to to Germany um, in Euro 2016, you know, getting that one nil loss was was incredible. I celebrated it <laughs> <laughs> because Germany had 79% possession, but but actually it was this sort of it was this masterclass um, in a way of, of right. We know as long as we don't lose too badly, we're probably going to go through. Um, so you know, and, and a lot. Of, uh, some of that owed to, to um, you know, the how uh, brilliant um, McGovern was. I mean, so much of it. And like you say, it would just be, I don't think we'll lose him before the tournament, but I'd be surprised if he's still around after it. But so much is owed to, to Michael O'Neill and, and kind of the work he's been able to do there and the, the sort of, what he inspires in the players to to become more than not that they're incapable, but but to become more than the 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 sum of their their parts. Um, because none of them, with the best will in the world, none of them are, are world beaters. Well, well, listen, Ben. Just just to finish off on this one, I, I, I'll be remiss if I didn't ask you what was the most fun part of writing this book. What, you know, what area of it did, did, you know just just was a, a brilliant experience? Well, I'm sure the whole thing was, but I'm sure you have a standout uh, moment or standout piece of research. So there was a a, a Linfield uh, employee essentially played for Linfield um, briefly in the twenties, which was remarkable enough. So there's this guy Jerry Morgan um, who was from a nationalist um, Catholic background. You know, he'd sometimes go to mass when Northern Ireland uh, played Italy in uh, 57. Uh, He and Peter McParland went to the Vatican. So this guy worked for for Linfield, and that was a pretty big deal, particularly after the Second World War. He kind of, he was a Mr. Linfield. Um, and it's just this remarkable story of, of this, this guy who just, it shouldn't have worked, but it did. And, and the players loved it. You know, you get this real sense of in the sort of discussion, the chapter of the 1950s, um, football, uh, the, the sort of road to the 58 World Cup and, and how much the players loved this guy who by rights, he was he was in a sort of position that a lot of Catholics and nationalists were were sort of would have been drummed out of in a in a heartbeat. Um, but but he made a place for himself. Okay then, Ben. Look, the book will be out today. Book's out today. Correct. Tell us first of all where we can find it, and and and, and, and you know, give it a, give it one last plug for a real. So one last plug. You've got gunshots and goalposts: the story of Northern Irish football. A sort of deep dive. Um, a real definitive look at the history of, of football in Northern Ireland, um, looking kind of at, at sectarianism, shipbuilding, shipyards, um, a real kind of popular footballing social history um, of Northern Ireland, which is out today. 
Um, it's three ninety nine on Amazon and Google Play, and two ninety nine on my own website, which is polyfootmedia.com, which is p o l i footmedia.com, where it's a quid less. And the paperback is out on the twenty fifth of September. Um, that should shortly be going up um, as a pre order on Amazon, or you can pre order that directly from me uh, again on polyfoot media and i take it your 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 amazon covers all your kindles and everything all your online devices it can be all downloaded yep uh, so uh, amazon you get the kindle version google play you can get the uh, google's epub version and for my own website you can get it in any version you care to imagine so for kobo nook any tablet any ipad you name it um you can get that directly from my site if Kindle or Google Play isn't your cup of tea. I urge everybody to go out and buy it. Um, it's thought-provoking at, at times, I, I must admit. But th- there's a fascinating story. There's a fascinating narrative. And as I said, we've kind of covered it in this pod. You know, it starts from a very sort of <laughs> very sad perspective. But but in the nineteen or in the twenty seventeen version, the, the game has changed immeasurably and, and immeasurably for the better. I feel, and I hope it. I hope it's something that stays a trend that really does stay in in Northern Ireland football. Hey, hey. Just massive thanks for taking the time to talk to us, uh, and, and hopefully we can get you on WFI again at some point. Oh, it's been my pleasure, yes, uh, uh, gladly. Lastly, where can we find you on Twitter and so on, uh, You know, if anybody wants to follow you on social media? So you can find me on Twitter um, at Benjamarkar, which is B-E-N-J-A-M-A-R-K-R, um, and you can find the book on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gunshots and goalposts. And you can follow the book and I'll put up anything you care. Good reviews, hopefully, um, up there. And you can uh, you can stay up to date um, with, uh, with the progress of the book. Well, listen, I wish you every success with it. As I say, it's, it's magnificent that you've taken the time to do this. You know, I, I make no, I'm not unashamed at, at giving you her time here. Anything for Northern Ireland football. Um, you know, I, I applaud you and I wish you every success with it, Ben. Thank you very much, Dave. Not at all. Listen, from our own point of view, all our usual pods are out there. Um, you know, say season's back in full swing. So it just leads me to say thanks to the listener. Go and buy this book and educate yourself. And until the next globe, it's goodbye.